You're listening to the Driven by Our Design Awards Wrap. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Our Design, and joining me today is Jay Vogora. Jay. Mark, thank you very much for inviting me. Jay, you're one of the, and you know, it's a, it's a term of affection, but one of the kick-ass architects here in New York at Studio V. But rather than me try to explain what you do in your practice, give me a quick this is what we go do here at Studio V. You know, the simplest way I can put it, Mark, is Studio V is all about the reinvention of the city. The People, reinvention of the city? It's absolutely, there's one simple theme because we do all different kinds of projects. That's why I'm interested in your design awards. We do, we do residential, commercial, industrial, public spaces, parks, warehouses. We do cultural spaces. So to me, the only theme that unites our work is that it is all about the interaction between people. It's all about the social space of the city. But the most important thing with design today is that young people want to be in cities. They want to be in social environments. This is actually the great theme of our time, and this is what we try to address. So, Jay, today we're going to have a uh, we're going to tackle a topic of the future of work, but we're not going to start at the workplace. We're actually going to start at the home. Well, I think that work has actually completely changed where it really is no longer about the traditional workplace. As a matter of fact, I think working and living as a concept in our time has completely changed where they're blending together. And I know that we've looked at a couple of your projects today as you've taken me around your studio and you're looking at um, very different living spaces for people, but they also fit into a context that actually has either more parks around the around where they're living, it has more public space for them to be involved with. But if work is taking up all of our time, we can't use those public spaces. So I'd imagine the people who are investing to go live somewhere which has more about their downtime will be motivated that the future for them actually has more downtime. I think that we look for balance in our lives and one of the problems is that we work all the time, but if you have a balanced life you're also playing all the time. You really have to find ways to refresh yourself and have greater flexibility in your life. And so I think that's why workplaces have more social spaces within them. I'm in the process. We're sitting in my studio in New York and we're redesigning it right now. It's under construction to create more social spaces throughout the environment. That's one of the most important things to me because my staff are going to work better and work together better if they have more social spaces in which to work, in which to create. And we're seeing that that the um, there needs to be more sense of, of social for people at work, but at the same time we're also seeing that for many people that they're not finding the permanency at work that they're and as we look at one of the projects we're going to look at today that they're finding themselves on job panels or they're being digital nomads or work nomads where they're choosing the the projects that they pick up without necessarily the concept of permanency in a role that we used to that we used to go see. So so they're very interesting times that not only are we trying to go make when somebody is in the office that it feels that it's more social, but that's not so they're gonna stay there until ten o'clock at night. That's why they're there during the day that they're actually more productive. I think that more and more we're going to see this blurring line between what the office is and what living is and we have to find ways to both integrate work into our life and also to separate it and I think that this is actually one of the great themes that we're going to be dealing with and I think some of the projects that we're going to look at today start to address this where it does create more flexibility within our lives whether through technical means, whether through social spaces, 
whether through flexible opportunities for how people work together. And so listeners, the, the way that I think this is going to unfold for us today is Jay is meant to go and make these, make these environments that actually are coming from a predicted path. I'm taking a little bit of the agent provocateur side of things where I'm introducing a few variances that may come out of here because people have new, new options and new opportunities. And the truth is it's probably going to land somewhere between the, between the two of us. And as we were doing our pre-discussion, it's probably been one of the harder pre-discussions that I've had with the podcast because there's this ambiguity of, well, we try to go and actually push these programs down this path when it comes to the built space. And then I'm introducing things like there's going to be this way that people work, which is that they might be on a job panel, they might be doing just-in-time training, they may not want to go you know, travel an hour to work, they may only want to travel half an hour to work. And those pressures are going to definitely change the way that people have expectations. And Joe, I met your, met your son earlier today, and, I, and if I looked in his eyes and I thought, is he going to be somebody who's empowered to do the jobs that he wants when he's, got, when he's finished his college? Or is he somebody who is hoping that through the loyalty of the work that he's done in the past for somebody, that they'll be loyal to him and give him promotions in the future? Well, I like your questions and I like the way you bring it right to an emotional level because I think all questions like this do touch on emotions. Work is a far more emotional than a purely economic transaction today. So I do think young people, a, a young person like my son, a 15-year-old who's now just entering into education and later the workforce, they are going to see it completely different than we do. So we should look at some of your examples and question them a yeah, little bit. Yeah, we'll go into the projects here because the built spaces that you're, that you're working on aren't meant to change like iPhones where within 10 years there's been eight models. They're built they stay around for a long time. They might have a little bit of a touch-up on the ex on the exterior. They might have a little bit of a touch-up on the interior. But these physical places are investments that have a much longer period of time that they're meant to be permanent rather than software. And we're entering an age where that's changing a lot. Well, I think that's true. And definitely software is changing the way we're looking at things, but even software in terms of the physical environment, I think that's partly where you're going, Mark. So for example, I have a studio in New York, and it's very important to me that it be an open, creative place that brings people together from all over the world. But at the same point, I have some people working for me virtually. I have some people working for me from other countries and other continents on a regular and ongoing basis. We're collaborating using different kinds of digital technologies. I've had one of my staff members working with me today on a meeting I'm doing in Brooklyn on a project, and the client's not even aware that they're in Argentina, and they didn't figure out that they were working from another continent for me because it was almost irrelevant to the work they were doing. Yeah. And my CTO for Driven by Design, I see him probably three times a year. He only, he works and he lives maybe 30 minutes from the office, but there actually isn't a need for us to physically be in the same space. So we've got a lot of, a, a lot of variances that are coming up there. So I'm going to throw a little bit into the mix here with our first project, which is an organisation called Life Hire. They do um, talent panels for corporations. Now, if I went and I looked at somebody like Target, Target may need to put 30 designers on to go help them 
with a, with a project or 30 marketing managers for a project that's coming up. And rather than turn around and go out to the employment market when the need comes up, they want to be pre-loaded. They want to have people who are pre-vetted. They'd also like people who have previously worked on a project to still be in their environment and to be on a panel that they can draw on. So I think the idea of having a pool of highly talented people that could come from all over could be incredible. And I question myself the challenge because we're such a hands-on design industry. I would ask myself, is it possible that we could work with a pool like this? So for example, I've just been hired to do a very large project and I'm going to need a whole new series of designers to work with me in addition to my existing staff. And I would ask myself, would a tool like this work for me? It would be interesting for me to try it. And I don't know, to be honest, until I did, because we have such a culture that's a combination of needing the best people, the most talented people, and the process by which someone like Live Hire might be able to help us find that. And at the same point, we have such an intensive personal culture of working together. I don't know how those balance yet. And I think what, we, what we've seen with Live Hire is that they've been able to go and really successfully apply this in areas that have um, existing predefined roles. It's obviously more troublesome when you're trying to go take somebody who has a skill set that might be able to be applied for a task that has never been done before. But if you're working in banking, nursing, uh, veterinary, tourism... I could see it would be incredible. You, you, can see, you can see this changing. And it would be empowering even. And so if we, if we can abstract ourselves from our immediate business needs, we start to think about the people that we're planning spaces for. And I know one, one of the projects that you've been involved with for, for quite a number of years is the Astor um, uh, project. Right. Oh, Astoria. Yeah. Astoria, yeah. sorry. Astoria. And, uh, and the Astoria project. And, and recently there's been a ferry that's been put in there, so it will deliver people much faster than to the Manhattan area. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be a certain point where the, the staff turn around and say, you know what, I found that I could be a nurse or I found that I could be a hospitality worker closer to where I'm living and I've worked out how to spend more time in the park with my children rather than actually going to the job that's further away. And so, so we're finding that the options for people's lifestyle are now improving because there's getting, they're getting some... Uh, some more opportunities to go place themselves on panels. Well, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I have to admit, I myself walk three minutes to work, and I think that that is the ultimate lifestyle choice, is being able to work near where you live and to have the flexibility and the ability to be near your family, near your home, combine work. So I think that that's critical. And I think we were talking earlier, because you live in Melbourne, cities are changing. They have multiple centers. There's no longer one downtown. It's not like there's the working district Mm -hmm. and the living district. There are multiple places within every city. So maybe you need tools in order to match people to things that are closer to where they are. And this could be one of the greatest benefits in a lifestyle choice. And so I'm actually going to go and bring up our next project that I'm going to look at here is a project called Next There. It's from Sydney. So I'm going to jump around a few cities here. But it's from Sydney, and next there was uh, designed by Sydney Trains so that platform staff had information about when a customer comes up and they haven't got their Google Maps or their city map are open and that they don't know where they're going, and they say, I need to get the next train too, and that the station staff have all of the information. And I know that uh, I've had many retail experiences where I've gone into the store and it's easier for me to pick my phone up in Google and ask somebody in the shop. That's a bad customer experience. 
So we know that if, uh, you know, I was taken through a net promoter score review, I'm going to say, look, your online stuff's great. I worked out how to find the store. I worked out how to find the product. When, when I got into the store, sure. I was let down. Well, this is the ultimate irony because technology has completely changed the way we use transit. I've talked to the head of the MTA here in New York where everybody has immediate access to all information to use transit, but you're right. There's you know, something called in the digital consumer experience, the last mile. Well, if you the last few feet where you're almost there, but you're on the platform, you're confused, Google has taken you there, and you need that last piece of information in order to make the connection, that's actually the place where the personal interaction with technology often fails. So maybe this could be a new kind of tool next there in order to allow you to understand how once you get there, you can get the final piece of information you need and you can interact with a real human being. And you and I were talking about theatre before. You know, we've both had experience with theatre in mm. the past. Moments of truth. You know, if, if you're on a stage and something doesn't happen, the show kind of falls apart. If I'm on a station and I'm a little bit panicked or a little bit stressed, I walk up to a staff member and I ask them to go help me to get to the next the next station or give me an alternate route option, if they, if they haven't got that information, that actually increases my anxiety, increases my strength, rather than the moment of truth where they bring me down and I actually feel, oh, somebody's given me the right information, I'm secured. So putting those tools into staff's hands and then having their staff knowing, well, if I go actually pick up some work with job A, uh, with employer A versus employer B, employer B is going to actually go give me the tools that make me excel and feel like a superhuman. Employer A doesn't give me that. We're going to see the flow of talent move around quite a bit. I think apps are changing and there's going to be different kinds of apps too used for different sorts of tools. So I really like the idea of anything that really connects people more closely to a situation so let's move on to our next project here. And we're going to head off to, to Germany here. It's, um, it's a project which has been designed by the Switzer Group here in, here in New York. But it's actually in Germany for IBM. And it's at the IoT, the Internet of Things headquarters for Watson. Now, when I first started to go look at this, and I think as we were talking, we're, the question that you had was, does <laughs> anybody inhabit this space? And it, and it is a little bit, you know, 2000 space already. It's, a, it's, it's an, a beautiful space, but it doesn't look like people live in this space. It looks like people might walk on it, not like they actually are resident in it. Well, I liked your own comment about the one picture here because, you know, as an architect, when we design a space, when we document it, one of the biggest questions we always have is, are we going to show it with people in it or not? And it's an interesting thing, and I have to say, in general, just speaking for myself, I always prefer to see somehow what the interaction is between the person and the space and how the space relates to the individual. And there's this one magnificent picture here, which I love, which is amazing, but it shows the world's largest table covered with a whole configuration of different products. And it's really creating, as you said, kind of an Instagram-ready shot. And it's beautiful, but somehow it lacks that one single human element, which I think would be key. So in order to create a real resonance with this company, somehow I think they need to find a way to bring the humanity back into it in order to express this idea if they really want to succeed. Yeah, and I think we also have to work out why would IBM create this sort of visitation center? And we know that with artificial intelligence that there's three sorts of people that need to actually make the world go round. 
Mm. There's people who are called trainers. They have to go train the artificial intelligence systems. There's people called explainers. They need to work out how to explain what could happen to the organisation. And then there's sustainers. And I think what IBM have done here is that they've got a space which is going to be perfect to onboard the explainers, the people who are trying to explore how can our company use some of Watson's artificial intelligence? How does this functionally work for us? I'm not sure it's meant to be so much as a, a place where you're doing the, um, the training and the sustaining. I think this is more about transfer of knowledge, teaming for people to be able to go do some of the work to get to gain their ideas and then that people have actually feel that they've been to the mountain, they've been to the Watson IoT space, they've got all the inside knowledge. And so it's really about a visitation education process, not so much industry. I mean, I can see that from the pictures you're showing here. That definitely seems to be something that makes sense with this with me. And, and then that's, that's going to become more and more prevalent as we keep changing and the pace of change increasing, we're going to have more need for spaces for people to go and gather together. Um, earlier this week, I was down at uh, the Adidas, or for people who call it Adidas, there are two pronunciations. The German pronunciation, yeah. Um, so the Adidas um, uh, farm, which is a mixture of um, creative collaboration space and also makerspace. And the reason they've got that there is that they've got global teams who need to be aligned. And so by bringing them into what looks like it's a fabrication of ideas space, they're able to go get that alignment across their creative teams around the world. I'm fascinated how cities are becoming new centers for brands to create these kind of creative laboratories where they want to explore design ideas and more importantly, bring people together. And I think this is one of the key things, like the Adidas space in, in Greenpoint. They're finding that certain social spaces, like Greenpoint, which is such a unique neighborhood within New York, are really useful for creating a locus where you can bring different kinds of people together, create a different kind of interface, create a synergy between different groups of people. And I think this is one of the most exciting things that's happening in cities, these flexible environments for ideation and for developing ideas and bringing others together. Yeah. And, and so, as we look at that future of work, it's not everybody's going to become an information worker. We still need people to do physical things, but the idea that we're going to go bring them into spaces which are engaging experiences and are giving them a window to the future, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I also love the idea it's not just pure thinking, it's not just brainstorming, but making again, Brooklyn and Greenpoint is one of the centers of the making industry. And I think that's one of the interesting things where ideas and pure thought creation is intermixed also with people that are making food, uh, creating craft beer, doing digital fabrication technologies, making unusual objects for us. These two things are actually coming together in these kinds of spaces. Yeah, next project that we're going to have a look at here is for the Deco Group uh, based in the London Design Awards. And uh, this was a project done for Deco by Unispace. I'm, I'm interested in this because ADECO place talent into organisations and they've created a workspace that is going to be very similar to the workspace that they're going to be placing a lot of these workers. Rather than actually have people sitting purely in cubicles, they've now got people working in open plan spaces, they've got um, teaming and forming um, areas, 
a lot more of that social engagement that you're talking about bringing to your office. And I think it's going to have a, a huge impact in them understanding the work environments that they're sending their, their team into. Because it's very hard if you've got somebody who's saying, I'm going to send you to the moon, but I've never been there myself. It's true. I, so I don't know this company so well, but as I look at the different images for it, what's interesting to me is, yeah, the space itself is maybe becoming kind of a, a reference, a training ground for the sorts of spaces that people are now moving into um, that they're going to be working in. So you can see a whole range of different kinds of seating areas, bars, cafe areas, shared tables, co-working spaces, um, and having a kind of a range of environments like that is key. Exactly, and a range of the candidates will visit the offices for the, for the um, HR companies, uh, the talent recruitment companies, and so that they'll have a range of people that they've got almost in a semi-front-of-house environment. Then they've also got how do we team and how do we form together. So high engagement, high productivity environments are even appearing in places that you may not have thought that they would, not just the tech companies. Mm -hmm. So let's keep moving along here a little bit and we'll have a look at Cathay Pacific. Now, they've done a very similar thing. So Cathay Pacific here in the London Design Awards and uh, this work has been done by the team at Align. I kind of feel like I'm in one of the lounges. And, and I know that Microsoft uh, have always had a saying which, even though Microsoft doesn't make dog food, they turn around and they say that their staff has, has to eat their own dog food, meaning all presentations on PowerPoint, <laughs> all email and Outlook, all, all spreadsheets are in Excel, because if, we, if we're not prepared to go use it ourselves, how can we expect the customers? And so when I look at Cathay Pacific here, they've got the eating your own dog food, which is our offices are going to feel like one of our luxury lounges, um, rather than it feeling like it was a different experience there. And, and that immersing yourself in the customer experience, getting the same feel that they're having is very important, but it also helps get consistent branding happening across the organisation. Mm. Well, I always think of Cathay Specific as being an extremely elegant brand. And I think just by using very reductive materials, very clean kind of contemporary approach, you know, it looks like they are speaking to that kind of greater brand experience. Yeah. And, uh, and so we'll keep moving along in some other built spaces here. So our next project here is, uh, is from Taipei. And I do love all of the projects that, uh, that come through from Taipei because they have the most engaging names on them. <laughs> <laughs> this one here is the Intelligent Energy Efficiency Green Building. Now, I think they actually had me at hello. You know, if they had just said Intelligent Energy, I would have been there, but it's also efficient and green. When we first started to go speak about this project, I was reflecting on this could be almost an anywhere building. Mm -hmm. um, if we didn't look at the foliage that was in here, this building could actually be in Holland, it could be in Germany, it could even be in Istanbul. I agree, yeah. And, and that's interesting where if we start to go look at, at, the, at the buildings as having this global palette, but the culture is going to be very different. And culture to me is such an important aspect of, you know, do people, do they work late? Because that might be one work culture in one city. Have they got that it's actually meant to be a space that the, the children come to? And if you're just picking up a global palette and applying it around the world, that's probably not going to be as useful to you as working out how to localise and contextualise. I agree. This is one of the things I struggle with because somehow there's a contradiction in design where we're moving towards greater, more universal values. Everyone is using an iPhone 
you know, that certain things might be generic across whole cultures. And yet, I feel like as a denizen of the city, as a native of New York who lives downtown, like you have to have the specificity that comes from a place, the uniqueness that comes from an experience. And this is one of the challenges I think we face in design is how to bring the specific into the universal. And I think one of the things you'll never lose is the cultural signatures of, of New York are the sirens and also the honks. <laughs> we can the hear fire. them in the background while we're doing the podcast. I, I know. <laughs> and, 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 but that is part of the milieu. You know, the, the sounds were, if we were being romantic, we'd say it was the sound of the birds, but the fact that you're hearing cars honking and, and <laughs> sirens from first responders, that's part, that is part of the flavor of New York. And there's a band downstairs getting ready to do a great concert, and we just came through a crowded street with a whole bunch of people going out. Yeah. That is part of the deal. And, and so the idea of being everywhere it actually becomes somewhere when you start to get those other layers going, uh, put in there. So, so on one on one hand, and I feel like a lawyer here. On one hand, you've got that, you know, you can apply an everywhere building anywhere because of that other culture that comes in. On the other hand, there may be other choices than just doing an anywhere building. Maybe it's actually a matter of making sure it's already got deeper cultural sensitivities and deeper resonance with the people that you're putting the building in place for. Well, you know, um, Rem Klohaus speaks of the idea of junk space. I don't know if you've ever read the amazing essay where he talks about the universal, endlessly changing space around the world. And he actually refers specifically to the continuity of airports, as if one airport is every single airport in the entire world. As a world traveler, Mark, you must personally experience junk space on an, on, on an ongoing basis. I, I have this thing where departure lounges, I take photographs of them, and then I throw them up on social media. And, I ask, and you see if you can figure out which one was which. I ask, I ask people to tell me where I am, and it's really hard for people to, to work out where I am based on the departure land. So that junk space, there, there is that there. Doing something that actually has, um, has meaning for the people who are your primary customer base is very important. The airports don't have a primary customer base. They've got all nations moving through there, and yet, we do see some countries who say our primary experience is an entry experience of the country, it's true. an exit experience of the country. And that then brings us to this next project that we're looking at for an organisation in, in Melbourne called Bank of Melbourne. Yeah. Great to go say that they weren't called Bank of Sydney when they're in Bank of Melbourne. Um, so it's in Melbourne, but it's in a suburb which, is, um, uh, which has a huge population of Chinese. Mm. And their environmental graphics um, has Chinese characters in there. It's got Feng Shui has been put in. It has a very Asian contemporary feel. And it, to me, it actually shows that the brand is saying, we want to be about you. We are your local bank. We want to make sure this feels like your local bank, not something that we've done in 49 other locations. Sure, there's a, there's a lot of things I like in here because I think this starts to touch on that notion of specificity. It could still be very contemporary. It's not using traditional forms whatsoever, yet it's communicating cultural cues. It has a unique point of view. The integration of the materials, the lighting, and especially the greenery, I think, really is creating something that's more unique. And I think this is a successful project. And, and that to me is that thing about do you do everywhere or do you do specific? And I think we're seeing specific working here. I think you actually have to do both. You have to touch upon the universal. You're being the, now you're being like the lawyer on one and hand and on the no, other. No, but I think you not just, not just 
Both are equivalent. You have to synthesize both. You know, somebody once said, what is the definition of architecture? And Roland Barth, I think, it's almost impossible to define what architecture is. And the best definition I know is, it's the expression of an ideal and the instrument of a convenience. It has to express a broader, bigger, more universal idea, and there must be something specific that is human and deep and profound that responds to an individual touch. It has to do both. That's not a lawyerly comment. I think that's a necessity. Well, I, I agree with you there. <laughs> Two more projects to go. One of them here is called Shiftwalk Solutions, a fatigue management. And what I love is that some things that resonate and make sense in the corporate speak in one city, they just don't make sense in some others. So Jay, you asked me, what the hell is a fatigue management? As a New Yorker, I'm asking myself even like, this sounds like something that we would all want, Mark. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> so fatigue management um, comes in from occupational health and safety. We don't want workers who are damaging themselves. And that generally falls down into either you go get a crush injury, you get a strain injury uh, because you did too much, or you get a fatigue industry um, probably because you didn't do enough in mm. there. That's uh, one sort of fatigue, sedentary fatigue. And this is an example of you don't have to move people around in physical spaces to go to education these days. And that to me is an interesting juxtaposition with the parent who's in Astoria who's worked out that they can go take it's half an hour for them to go do their nursing job but then they're told that they have to you know, travel down to Manhattan which is an hour commute for them to go to a training course that's gone now and I think we're seeing that respect of we're trying to actually get you to go do something in the time that you choose rather than the time that we choose which is what's coming in in that online training a really big difference, particularly if it's actually being done for the convenience of the person rather than done at them from a corporate department. And that's really just in the delivery of and the culture inside the organisation. I see. Well, the idea of having the flexibility to learn remotely, I think has to be one of the great opportunities that we have. So, and I think that the ability to bring something that could actually affect people's safety and welfare and to make it more accessible to them could be a wonderful thing. And I know we, we spoke earlier about the, um, you've got a 3D printer here that's in the office, you've got staff that you, that you go actually bring in. The fact that the supplier of that 3D printer has online training modules of how do you change the filaments in there and that you can either send a staff member off to go learn how to go do it themselves or before somebody's applied, it's actually, we need you to pass the modules before you can come in and actually do an assistant job for us. All important and efficient in the way that the future of work's going to occur for you as an employer, because then you're having a meaningful conversation with them, not just a rudimentary conversation. No, I think you have a point here. I think that it's more and more difficult to deal with all the different kinds of procedures and technologies, and so if we had a better way to do that. And that then brings us into our last project here, which is Urban Grid um, by Dapper Apps. And, and this fits into that training orientation side of things. How do we make sure that people know what to do with very complex pieces of machinery? The particular uh, project that we're looking at here is about a, um, a bulldozer in, would be the, our language, what, what do you call it in the States? Oh, we call it a bulldozer. Fantastic. We finally found <laughs> something that, we finally found something which is the same. I've got to tell you everybody, traveling the world, I, sometimes I feel like I'm a buffoon and an idiot because the words just don't translate. So bulldozer, I have, I have cracked it here. 
But this is that idea that you can take even a machine like a bulldozer and help to get staff orientated because you might be trying to get somebody who's come through, they've applied to go and actually um, use, the, use your bulldozer, drive it for you. The fact that you can certify them, you can recertify them because these things often have a lease to them. I think it's a great, great offering to go have that you can actually um, get them to go fill in um, assessment forms when they finish driving it for the day, is there wear and tear. Digitising this information so that you've got real-time knowledge is all important because the downtime on the bulldozer is pretty expensive, but also having a staff member who has to go fill in paperwork everywhere else just doesn't make sense either. Well, I have to tell you, all I can say is I think it's complete madness that you can have a digital program that shows you how to drive a bulldozer, so I want to sign up and learn how to do it. That's all I have to say. Look, I'm, I'm going to share, just about every podcast I share something which is somewhere between weird and absurd about me. I would love to take six months off work and go film bulldozers, diggers, road, <laughs> road machines, just like make long-form videos so that young boys can sit down, and girls, but young boys can sit down and just watch how roads are made. I remember as a kid, that's what I did. I sat by roads. Probably wouldn't be allowed today, but this sort of stuff just intrigues me. I think we should go do this together, Mark. I'll, do, I'll study the program and learn how to drive it, and then you could film it and document this, because no one will ever believe <laughs> Fantastic. it. Fantastic. So, Jay, when we started this, I, I didn't know exactly where it was going to go, because it's really hard to plan a conversation. But I think as we've gone through this, we've been able to go pick up your expertise, on the built space. My agent provocateur about, well, maybe it's gonna change a lot more than just the materiality of the building. And hopefully we've been able to go give our listeners the opportunity to say there's some more questions about what the future of work is, which is also about the future of living. I think the two work together where it seems at the beginning we were talking that maybe they were different. I think that the notion of having greater flexibility through all these different kinds of tools, through programs, through apps, through different devices that give you greater flexibility in the workplace are definitely going to happen. And at the same point, I think the need for a physical environment that's comfortable, flexible, and long-lasting in terms of its aesthetic appeal, I don't think those two things are contradictory at all. As a matter of fact, I think today they're more necessary than ever. So, Jay, I can't do this without my fellow design giant to come and join me. So thank you very much for giving me a hand on this episode. And thank you, Mark, for having me join you. This was really a pleasure and very unusual. And obviously, we can't do it without our community. So for the design studios that have helped submit the projects, for the community members that have gone in and helped rate the projects, and also the people who are just listening to the podcast, without them, Driven by Design is nothing. So thank you. And as I always say, remember, be driven by design. <laughs>